0: My name is David Elstein, and this is the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery podcast. Each episode of the podcast is designed to help busy orthopedic surgeons learn more about the ABUS and board certification. On this episode, we have Dr. Michelle James, who has been a longtime volunteer with ABUS, including previously serving on the ABUS board of directors. That service included a year as vice president. Dr. James is a pediatric hand surgeon in California. Hi, Dr. James. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, David. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's talk about your background. How did you decide to become a physician? And more specifically, why did you decide to become an orthopedic surgeon?
1: Well, I had some really um, good early mentorship. Uh, My dad was an orthopedic surgeon. And that just caused me to want to go in different directions, I think. But it turned out, I learned many years later, that he had sort of carefully planted some uh, mentors along the way. And one was one of the first female orthopedists in California, a woman named Lorraine Day, who uh, was a resident when I first met her when I was in high school. And at that time, she talked me into medicine. And then again, when I has uh, when I was in my fourth year of medical school, I did a rotation at San Francisco General, because so I was going to medical school elsewhere, and um, was thinking pretty strongly of OBGYN. And at that time, I saw the contrast between residents in OB and residents in ortho. The residents in ortho were much happier with their work, um, and which surprised me, but um, has I found to be consistently true throughout my career that orthopedic surgeons tend to love their jobs more than some other specialties. Um, and it just was enough to uh, to convince me that that was a really good path to go down. Um, so that's I thank Lorraine Day for convincing me at two different stages for pushing me towards medicine and ortho.
0: Well, that's interesting. I guess on a a similar transition, you know, said, there's only a small percentage of orthopedic surgeons are women today. You know, when I assume when you were, you know, trained, there were significantly fewer. Do you want to sort of comment on that in your experience being one of, I assume, a few uh, female orthopedic surgeons?
1: It was actually, I ended up training at UCSF, and there was a little uh, bump of women during my training period. Unfortunately, of the five of us who were in the program over the time I was there, only a couple ended up um, practicing. So I think mm-hmm. the, the um, at that time, I think training was accessible, but it was difficult to get much further than that. Um, the, there are very few women in orthopedics where the most where the subspe, the or specialty most underrepresented um, and I think we're at about 8% now of board certified orthopedists or actually I think it's measured at the level of AOS membership. Um, so that's really low. That's lower than um, any other specialty and, and kind of surprising. And I think the fact that a, a lot of people have tried to study why this is Um, and we've not yet come up with one sort of answer that explains it completely. So I think it's probably multifactorial, Uh, but it is still the case. I mean, we're seeing more women in some subspecialties. I have on my staff here, I'm chief of orthopedics at Shriners in Northern California. We have 12 orthopedists and eight of us are women. So oh, wow. we, um, we're we a majority. I think part of that is because there's two senior ones who are women, me and and one of my other partners. And I think younger women can see that it's possible to be a woman in orthopedics. And I think it's also due to the fact that we benefit from um, peds ortho and hand within our specialty are two of the areas where there are more women in training. It's a long pipeline. And I think at least one of the challenges is that you know it's 10 years from the time you start to the time you finish but it's even longer from the time you start thinking about what you want to do and you have to Mm -hmm. lay the groundwork for it though because it's so hard to get into as a specialty so i think there's definitely a wide range of reasons why there's fewer women than men and some of them we need to fix um, and some of them will will probably fix themselves eventually
0: so I mean, I guess you hit on you know mentors are probably key both for you personally and then for people today. I guess there are there other ways that the field can increase the number of women who become uh, orthopedic surgeons?
1: I think mentors are are big. Um, you know, when you see somebody who looks like you in an important way, um, that that opens up possibilities. I think it also you know across our whole specialty. I mean, it's not only women that orthopedics is deficient in, it's minorities are underrepresented in ortho compared to in medical school and other. And mm-hmm. I mean, um, Blacks, um, Asians, not so much, but there's a really, um, there's a pretty noticeable difference and it's not changing very fast. In fact, it's it seems to even gone backwards um, for some minorities. Um, I think mentorship is huge. I think also we have to really seriously assess whether Some of the um, rules and regulations that made sense when most people going into orthopedics were men may not make sense when women are entering the specialties. You know, a lot of the, for instance, childbearing comes up around the time that we're, you know, in intensive training and starting practice and have to jump through a number of hoops to become board certified. And all of that tends to hit us at once. And I know that the board is looking closely at that and I'm really grateful for that. And I think they're actually already making some changes from what I've heard. Um, But aside from that, I think um, we need to all stop and think about how we treat our trainees and how we treat people who are showing an interest in our specialty. Um, Because we've fallen into a lot of habits and ways of interacting that may not be conducive or seem friendly or make um, people who look different from you know the most of those of us in orthopedics even want to enter the specialty.
0: So let's talk about you as a, you know, ABOS volunteer. You've been doing it for, I guess, more than 20 years. Why did you decide to volunteer initially with ABOS?
1: Um, I, I started out as an oral board examiner. And I have to say, I've, I've written lots of questions. I've given oral boards for a long time. And comparing the two for anybody interested in volunteering um, the oral boards are amazing. I think we are just the paradigm in our um, in all of the specialties for how we board certify people. and um, I think it's just actually I, said, I was talking with some of our residents about this this morning so we were talking about all the tests you have to take and how mm-hmm. your scores matter and all of that and what I told them, and what I really believe, is this is just oral boards are just the best way to tell if you know somebody is taking good care of their patients. You know, to sit down and discuss cases, and um, you know, there's so many, so many, so much information that we can get about how a person thinks and what their knowledge base is, and how they treat people um, in an oral board exam. So I got kind of hooked on that early, and really. Really liked that volunteer work. There's also the collegiality of being around the other board examiners. There's, I, I just have a, a lot of confidence in that process. Um, and that sort of led me to an interest in um, serving on the board of directors. I also have a strong interest in orthopedic education, mm-hmm. um, which was a big part of what I wanted to do more of. It, it wasn't the question writing that sucked me in. That to me is, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's really, really hard to write a good question. Um, and, um, and so, you know, but it was the, it was the oral boards.
0: I think that, that got me started. And back to the gender issue, when you started being an oral examiner 20 years ago, were you one of just a handful of women examiners? And has that increased over time or what's, what's happened with that?
1: Yeah, it's increased a lot. We started going out to dinner together one evening of the boards, and you know, we used to not even have to make reservations <laughs> in advance. And now it's a large group. Um, and that has um continued. And um, so yeah, it was a it was a small group early on. Mm-hmm. I have to say I never ran into any anything that I would have called issues around being a, a female. Um, I do remember remember, you know when I took my board sitting in the front row, there were like 80 of us in the room and I was the only woman and that was really really noticeable and I'd sat in I'm a front row person so yeah. fortunately I wasn't looking at all these you know men in dark suits in front of me. it wasn't until I turned around and realized that that, that uh, it dawned on me.
0: So, for both, you know, orthopedic surgeons in general, and for you know, volunteers, is there anything that ABUS can do to increase the number of women, increase the number of underrepresented minorities?
1: Well, I think um, probably not directly, like going out and actually doing something that changes um, the proportion. But something I noticed from the time I served on the board, which was 2000. Six to 2016, at the beginning of my time, you know, this was just not on the radar. The whole concept of diversity um, and inclusion were just not on the radar at all. Mm -hmm. Um, There had been one woman on the board before my year, uh, Mary Beth Izaki, and then my year was uh, two people come in each year on the board, and it was Judy Baumhauer and me, So, and Mary Beth was still around. So all of a sudden, we were three out of Mm -hmm. 21 22 or however many there are and that was that was noticeable i mean that certainly got noticed um, along the way and i think the board in general i guess to really answer your question i'd say that the board needs to and has changed the way that it thinks about diversity and inclusion and just from talking recently at the oral boards to a couple of the current board members Something that always seemed to me to be obvious when I was on the board, and it wasn't quite the way that every, that most of the others thought was that, you know, the board serves the public. The board should look like the public. And the the sort of confusion about who the board serves is not really on the part of the board members so much. Um, sometimes orthopedists and practice are confused and think that the board serves them, um, but it serves them indirectly by making sure that the public is safe. And I think just the concept that the board if the board looks like the public that's a very strong statement um, even though to do that you know it it's it doesn't look quite like the profession um, which you know is is a little bit different but i i think that's been a, a um i mean just from observing from the outside of the board i think that's been a a priority in recent years and i just okay. i think that's a really probably the single most important thing that that can be done
0: and as you mentioned you you love being an oral examiner, I'm sure you've seen hundreds of part two candidates over time. Are there any, you know, hints you can give candidates so they can, you know, be as successful as they can on the exams?
1: All the exams are is a chance for you to show your practice to your future colleagues or your current colleagues, because a lot of the board examiners are your current colleagues. And that, you know, that's all this is. I mean, all you have to do to do well on the boards is to know your cases really well. And the concept of, you know, changing your practice while you're in your board collection period never made any sense to me. Because if you're doing the right thing on a daily basis, why do you have to change it? And if you have a case with complications, that's not a problem. It gives you more to talk about, you know, and and board Um, you know, you're not going to get, well, I don't want to make any predictions, but a a case with complications is not a sign that you're not doing a good job. A case with complications give you a chance to show what a good job you can do with, you know, because we all have complications. So I guess that would be my main message. And even if the complication is egregious, I've examined people many years ago who had wrong site surgery, you know, the explanation of what you did about that and how you changed your practice to show that that didn't happen again and this this sounds dated because it is because now we have good ways of preventing that most of the time but before we had that you know just being able to show that you thoughtfully had recognized the complication and done what you could as a professional to make sure that that didn't happen again that's what we want to hear it's not that you never had a complication that's weird if somebody has no complications it looks suspicious (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know because we all have them
0: good so still in the oral exams you know how has the exams you know changed over time since when you start maybe even when you started as an examinee to an examiner to now you know being a, a veteran examiner for lack of a better term
1: It's changed a lot. I mean, when I took the exams, we still had standard questions. At the time I took it, it was half our cases and half standard questions. We actually had to look in a microscope, which was very intimidating Uh to most of the including me. And the standard questions were, well, we obviously, those went by the wayside, (laughs) so for good reason. Um, I think that um, some of the things that have happened most recently are really are really good. I think for a while we got very restrictive about you know not being able to know who each other were and not being able to you know to have your patients' names on any of their cases and things like that. And I think we worked through ways around those that make it more, uh, from my perspective anyway, more like a conversation about mm-hmm. somebody's cases. The one thing that has been maintained. And I think it's important, but it's awkward. And that is for examinees. We're not, the examiners aren't teaching you. It's, this is not a teaching session. And that's culturally challenging for both the examiner and the examinee, because we're so used to, and we're hearing about a case and we either teach or ask, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a teaching situation. The boards is not a teaching situation. And so it can feel, um, It can feel a little bit awkward. I usually say that at the beginning of the exam. You know, we're going to be listening to you. Once you've answered our questions, we're going to move on to another question. We want to hear about all of your cases because you just have a brief time to talk about them. You put a lot of work into this. You know, it shouldn't be the examiner doing a lot of the talking, it should be the Mm -hmm. person being examined being led by the examiner to answer questions. But I guess I'd say that the one thing we've retained over time that I think is good, but awkward is is the not teaching part. It's more the listening.
0: So you're obviously very passionate about volunteering. So why should um, diplomats consider? I mean, most people are, have a busy work life. They have, you know, their families. So why should they, you know, take time away from each to be a volunteer for the ABUS?
1: Well, back when we decided to be physicians, we made a social contract starting from the very beginning. And the social contract is that we make sure that we, um, that we don't cause harm. And we also have a contract to teach the people who come along behind us. And we have a contract to police our profession and make sure that our other professionals are doing a good job. I mean, those are parts of any profession and medicine is a profession and orthopedic surgery is a profession. So I think the reasons to volunteer, I mean, this is just one way among many of making sure that we're holding up our end of the contract. People give us an enormous amount of trust. Um, in my case, they trust me with their children, you know, and that's that's huge. And I think that the other the other part of that bargain is that, not bargain, that's the wrong word, but the other part of that contract is that we make sure as far as we can that people doing the work that we've chosen are, are, you know, good at it and are going to to hold up their part of the contract.
0: I guess even more specifically, you were, we mentioned you were on the board for 10 years. A lot of people don't realize the 10-year term and it's a volunteer position. And being a volunteer position, they say, what, about a, a month, a year that you're doing it between all the meetings and all the work. So why should someone, once again, who's It's one thing if you're busy and take, you know, cold days a year to be a volunteer, which is still, I mean, to be an examiner, which is still an amazing thing. But for 10-year commitments, why would you, you know, convince a colleague that it's a good opportunity?
1: Well, I I have a huge advantage um, in that I'm an employee. Um, I work for Shriners Hospital, so I'm an employee. And as part of my time on the board, Shriners gave me. Um, to honor that because they value that their uh, physicians are serving on the board, um, gave me extra um, paid time off to do that work. So I feel like I was privileged amongst volunteers because some of my colleagues were taking unpaid time off to do that work. So I can't really speak to their level of altruism. (laughs) (laughs) I can say that um, because I really admire that. But for me, it was um, Shriners made it reasonably easy. I don't, it was never easy because travel, traveling that much is not easy, but the collegiality with the other board members, I've never been in a group of, of colleagues where there was such trust um, and such a common mission, but we could disagree within that common mission um, to make things work better. Um, So that was really rewarding for me. I learned a huge amount about leadership. I've taken lots of leadership courses, but serving on the board and just watching my fellow board members um, and how they make decisions and how they work with each other taught me more about leadership, I think, than any other leadership course I ever took. And, you know, feeling like at the end, there's things that I can cite that I got to help with that made a difference. And that um, you know, the work made a difference in training, made a difference, made our profession work better. And that that was that's that was really satisfying, too.
0: Well, that's a perfect segue. I guess what's your proudest achievement as a director?
1: Probably two things. One was and this was originally Jim Casser's idea, not mine, but he um, tossed it to me and I had to run with it. I was serving on the ACGME at the same time as the board. That was the board has a representative on the ACGME. Mm-hmm. Uh, or more than one sometimes, and um, it just, there was just sort of a general awakening to the fact that interns going into orthopedics, PG by ones, were spending a a lot of their time doing things that weren't going to help them down the road in orthopedics, and that time, your internship year is really valuable, and this coincided, you know, with people were getting way into the EMR, and there were internships where people were spending their entire month on, you know, surgical ICU, just sitting at a computer. Um, and so changing the regulations for the amount of time that orthopedic interns spent on ortho, it was just an idea whose time had come. And we were able to get it through the ACGME and the ABOS. And now it's taken for granted that you're going to spend half of your internship doing orthopedics, which makes a lot more sense. But I was in the right place and the right time to you know, to get this through both of those organizations, which normally would have been kind of challenging to change, both mm-hmm. of them, concert, but it, um, it worked. And then the other was working with the education committee on the board to get, um, at the time I was on the board, we were just, you know, starting to look at, you um, education, like um, simulation training, basically in orthopedics and other specialties were ahead of us. General surgery was way ahead of us. And so we looked at what others were doing and um, convinced the board to um, put up some funds for grants to get various simulation studies started. And we funded a bunch of them. I don't think that you know, none of them were like major breakthroughs, but they got the ball rolling and it became more of a an assumption that there would be some component of simulation training that we wouldn't just learn everything on people, um, which was good for a whole bunch of reasons. It's mm-hmm. still a work in progress, I think, but there's a lot more acceptance of it along the way.
0: What would you like to tell people about the ABUS, the ABUS board certification process, or any misconceptions or anything that you maybe you learned being? either volunteers, an examiner, or on the board that you would want others to know?
1: Well, I think the ABOS is the way that we as orthopedists keep our contract with society. We serve to make sure that we are serving the public as we promised we would when we became physicians. And I think the ABOS is the way that we accomplish that. I think the fact that the ABOS is directed by thoughtful people who spend a long time, long time and a lot of intense time really thinking about how to make things work. They think long term, it's a long game. At the time I was on the board, we were still figuring out how to, you know, who had to recertify. We still had a lot of um, people who didn't have to recertify when they took their boards. They were, um, they were not, you know, the recertification hadn't come along. But the board looks long-term, like how can we make recertification um, meaningful? Because it has to be meaningful if we're going to bother to do this. But it has to be possible <laughs> to be done in a busy practice. And I think they've done that beautifully with the web-based longitudinal assessment. I think that's just a fantastic idea. They, they, Some of that was borrowed from other specialties, but they've applied it really well and that's made it much more palatable and it's still meaningful. So I guess I think the board is, is the way that we as a profession show that we are professionals. And I think anybody, any orthopedist, if a, if a relative asks them for a referral to an orthopedic surgeon, one of the first things we're going to say is make sure they're board certified. I mean, that's a common, you know, um, metric that tells you that they've gone to the trouble of uh, showing that they know what they're doing
0: thank you dr okay. james for your time my pleasure to volunteer with abus log into your abus dashboard and click on the volunteer button if you enjoy this episode of the american board of orthopedic surgery podcast please subscribe to us on apple stitcher spotify amazon wherever you listen to podcasts so you know the next episode is posted